ABC Radio National, abc.net.au slash rn. Hello from David Rutledge and welcome to Encounter. This week we're taking an inner journey, but one that can have profound effects on the world and the people around us if we take the right steps. Today's program is about meditation and prayer, something that can seem anomalous or even redundant in the contemporary world. At a time when urgent social and environmental issues are calling us to action, it's not always easy to justify the act of sitting still as a means of making a contribution. And we'll shortly be hearing about the tension between contemplation and action. But we'll also be hearing about the way in which prayer and meditation can help us to deal very practically with the afflictions that we all face from time to time in our lives. The sacrifices, the losses, and of course the final relinquishment of the self that comes with dying, a process that in many ways meditation rehearses. And if the terms prayer and meditation and contemplation all sound strangely interchangeable here, it's because today's guest has a lot to say to people of Christian and non-Christian faith and to people of no religious adherence at all who are still interested in exploring the practice of sitting and emptying the mind. Last month, the Catholic Archdiocese of Brisbane hosted Pray 2010, a gathering of teachers and practitioners aimed at deepening the knowledge and experience of prayer and contemplation. And you can find out more about Pray 2010 on our website at abc.net.au slash rn slash encounter. Among the participants was Father Lawrence Freeman. Lawrence Freeman is a Benedictine monk based in England, and in addition to being a prolific author and peace activist, he's also director of the World Community for Christian Meditation. Lawrence Freeman gave two keynote addresses at Pray 2010, and today we'll be hearing an edited version of those talks. Here's Lawrence Freeman. The logo of our community is a very ancient symbol of two doves sitting beside each other, on the rim of a chalice-shaped cup. One is looking down into the cup, as if preparing to eat or drink from its contents, and the other is looking away. The Christian inspiration for this image of the relationship of action and contemplation comes from a fifth-century chapel in Ravenna. But it's actually a very ancient symbol. In the Mundaka Upanishad, for example, we read of two birds, two sweet friends, who dwell on the self-same tree. The one eats the fruit thereof, and the other looks on in silence. The first is the human soul, who, resting on that tree, though active, feels sad in its unwisdom, but beholding the power and glory of the higher spirit, it becomes free from sorrow. When I was a young boy growing up in London, I used to walk to Portobello Market in Notting Hill with my mother past a poor Clare convent. It was, a, to my young imagination, a mysterious fortress. It had high walls, no windows, a door with a grill, and a doorbell too high for me to reach. And I asked my mother what it was, and she said, very holy women live in there, and they pray all day. They never come out. So being whatever I was, six or seven, I said, how do they eat? People bring them food. And what if they don't bring them food? They don't eat. 
So this put me off contemplative life for many years. There was a, a kudos, I think, about contemplative cloisters in the Catholic mind at that time, especially. But also, there was a sense that it was another, it was a parallel universe. Didn't really have much to do with Portobello Market or the life we were living. In all spiritual traditions, there is a sense of a complementarity between these two aspects of the human soul, Martha and Mary, contemplation and action. And a healthy religion keeps the dialogue between the two birds open and regular. There's always a tension between them, a challenge. It's a challenge because they're poles apart, in a sense, and they can only be resolved in a paradox. And paradox is difficult to handle. We prefer things black or white, not black and white. So sometimes the challenge is dealt with by trying to suppress or deny the contemplative bird altogether. A strange bird. I heard of a priest recently who said from the pulpit that Christians who go into themselves are wasting their time. This is not what Christians are meant to be doing. Another way of evading the challenge is to put the two birds on completely separate cups by creating a specialized form of life that we call contemplative and restricting it by rules and regulations from spilling over into the active life. I used to wonder when visiting traditional enclosed communities with grills and cloisters, who or what is being kept out or kept in. But some enclosed communities are full of joy, infectiously joyful. And it's that joy that is the real justification for a life that doesn't need to be justified in any other way. You don't have to justify the contemplative life in cost-effective ways. Nevertheless, there is at least as great a contemporary attraction to contemplation as there is to hyperactivity. And it's this very antithesis, this very extreme polarity, which is the source of interest and vitality for us. They are different, but each needs the other in order to understand themselves. Both are archetypes, however different, and they point to an underlying shared unity of life experience and spiritual growth. Somehow or other, we all have to leave ourself behind if we are to follow Christ. The way may be different, but the goal and the interior process of detachment and non-possession is the same. There's one gospel, and Jesus wasn't speaking to contemplatives or actives in specialized uh, addresses. He spoke to all the people we hear. So, that's the 
polarity we're dealing with. Quite a lot of tension in there. Quite a lot of electricity between these two poles. In the Christian vocation, we can see two very different forms of monastic life. The Benedictine, self-sufficient cloister, discouraging going abroad, and the Celtic ideal of the wanderer. And we also have the much more normal model of marriage and a family life of stability and fidelity. If they are indeed all possible forms of Christian life, Christian discipleship, what do they have in common? And I think we can find the answer to this question in the practice of meditation. Meditation is universal, as is the call to human wholeness. What these two birds share in common is in some way or other dispossession, detachment, poverty of spirit. These sound like negative states, and they do involve some negation, but they are really the negation of a negation, and therefore they are essentially affirmative and positive and life-giving and joyful states. After all, happy are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the fullness, the kingdom of God. These are states of mind, if you like, that cannot be measured by your material possessions, how much or how little you have, or, or your daily activities, whether you're going to the office in the bank or going to, to sing the office in the church. One of the dangers of this vocation, the Christian vocation, is perfectionism. Perfectionism is the real enemy of the spiritual life, whether in religion, in the form of Pharisaism, scrupulosity, the guilt complex of the religious person who feels that God is angry with them, or in another form, in the secular world, in the cult of success. It's another word for perfectionism. Success at any price including your health or your relationships. So I think to understand the place of contemplation in the contemporary world, we have to look at the, our theology of sin and grace. And the Christian mystical tradition encourages us to do this. This is why the best theology of sin is to be found in the literature of the mystics, maybe more than in the moral theologians. St. Paul, before his conversion, was a typical Taliban figure. He kept the rules, he preened himself on his righteousness, and he felt totally justified in persecuting his religious enemies. The problem with fundamentalism of this kind, or perfectionism of this kind, is that it can only be sustained by a tremendous repression. A repression of our own shadow, a repression of the fact that we're not perfect. 
And the repression of our imperfection creates a pressure cooker that will eventually erupt in violence or self-destruction. And this perhaps is what happened to St. Paul when it blew up on the road to Damascus. And he became a new man with a new view of God and a radically new understanding of sin. No longer was sin a breaking of the rules that would incur God's wrath, delivered through his human police force. Sin, he now understood, look at chapter 7 of Romans, as a state of interior division, self-alienation, the painful and tragic state of being separated from one's own true self. The good that I want to do, I fail to do. But what I do is the wrong which is against my will. Every addict, every alcoholic can understand where Paul is coming from here. But his even greater insight was that where sin is, grace abounds all the more. And I think this is the most difficult teaching in the whole of Christian morality. That where there is sin, grace abounds all the more. Where there is the state of division and self-alienation and all the ugly and nasty uh, forms of uh, behavior that come from that interior dividedness, grace is magnified, is increased, is intensified to the same degree. The ego finds itself unwilling to accept this for some peculiar reason and often unable to accept him. And we can only experience this grace in the very heart of our sinfulness, of our imperfection, first of all by accepting ourselves as we are. That's the first step in meditation. Just accept yourself as you are at this moment good or bad, bored or interested, spiritually enthusiastic or spiritually tired. Just accept yourself as you are. Self-acceptance, not perfectionism, is the way to receive that grace. And we can only experience this grace through a transcendence of our ego consciousness, and that, of course, is the goal of contemplation. For Mother Julian, even sin, therefore, has a purpose in the divine plan of the world and of our individual lives. Felix Culpa, oh happy fault, there is a meaning and a, a purpose in our imperfection. St. Paul, still something of a perfectionist after his Conversion prayed to God to free him from his, the thorn in his flesh. Fortunately, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh is because now we can all imagine what it is because we all know we've got one or two or three. And three times he prayed to be rid of this thorn so that he could be perfect. 
and be a really good Christian evangelist. Be the best. And three times he was refused. He was stuck with his problem. And God said, it is in this weakness of yours that my power is made manifest. My grace is sufficient for you. For the cloud of unknowing in the 14th century, this work of contemplation, he says, dries up the root of sin within us. Fascinating insight. And as the modern church tries to find the language that can speak to the modern world and still be true to itself, the rediscovery of our contemplative tradition the contemplative dimension of faith is therefore of the utmost importance. It gives us the space and the depth to find the right language for our own time. On ABC Radio National, you're listening to Encounter. And today, Father Lawrence Freeman speaking about prayer and meditation at Pray 2010, an event hosted by the Catholic Archdiocese of Brisbane last month. The difference between the pagan and the Christian view of contemplation is that in the pagan world, only the very few people were uh, capable in a cultivated lifestyle built on the backs of slaves, only, and only men among them were really understood to be capable of achieving this wonderful goal of contemplation. Women were deemed incapable of it. And in the Christian vision, though, Jesus calls all to this vision of God. That's why he defends Mary in the Martha and Mary story. And the one thing necessary that he, t- he says, he, t- he reminds that Martha that she's forgotten, must be the integration of contemplation and action. In Christ, in contemplation, social distinctions and even gender differences are seen to be transcended. The restoration of the contemplative dimension of the Christian life to the mainstream took off powerfully after the Second Second Vatican Council, but it's been a consistent force in the church from the beginning. Augustine Baker, the 17th century English monk, argued that lay people were as capable of contemplation as monks, although he said if they are to live a contemplative life, they may have to make some changes to their lifestyle. They may have to go out to dinner less often if they were to stabilize this contemplative element. He also believed that lay people often make better spiritual directors than clergy. Abbot John Chapman, Thomas Merton, John Mayne, Henri Lousseau, B. Griffiths, Thomas Keating, all in their different ways, saw that the contemplation of the cloister was not limited to the monastic life. Benedict Oblates and meditators in general testify powerfully today to, this, to the authenticity of that vision, to the universality of the call to contemplation. St. Paul, 
who had visited the seventh heaven, was a tent maker and insists that he always earned his own living while practicing his ministry. The Desert Fathers worked in the fields at harvest or wove mats to support themselves in, financially in their life of prayer, but gave away whatever they had left over. The gospel accorded value even to the menial work of a slave, if it was done in faith. And so praying at all times, which is what contemplation ultimately means, praying at all times was a goal for every form of Christian life. Christian witness down the centuries resonates with the gospel account of the life of Jesus, who healed and preached, traveled, and was engaged in the issues of his time, but who also took space for solitude and silence for prayer. The Christian life, therefore, is essentially a mixed life of contemplation and action. As the cloud of unknowings, written for enclosed contemplatives, says, no life is completely active, no life is completely contemplative. To balance the two birds, then, on the rim of the cup of your life is natural, healthy, and necessary. The two hemispheres of the brain reflect this chemically and cognitively, the right and left-hand sides of the brain, active and uh, contemplative and active, respectively. Martha and Mary make it explicit through the words of Jesus, who said to the stressed-out Martha, only one thing is necessary. And he meant not that the one thing necessary was always to sit in silence like Mary, but that it is necessary to harmonize the Martha with the Mary in each of us. Natural. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. Life is inherently subject to constant change, and therefore balance has to be constantly recalibrated. We never stay in balance for very long. Our natural drift, and I, I don't know if this is universal, but I imagine it is, our natural drift in a fallen world is to tilt towards overactivity rather than too much contemplation. At some point, even if you begin to meditate from an entirely secular, psychological, or physical point of view, we may be led to see it as a spiritual path. And starting to meditate as a spiritual path represents an attitudinal shift from technique to discipline. And this can be very problematical for some people who don't like the word discipline, feels, feel that it's a restriction on their freedom rather than an expression and development of freedom, which it is. And it takes time for most of us to see this. But when you have changed gears and you move from technique to discipline, you move from being focused on the immediate benefits to understanding the deep meaning and the meaning of depth, then you know that you found a way of keeping the balance day by day between contemplation and action in the midst of a busy, often chaotic, modern lifestyle. And the steady rhythm of the twice-daily meditation, for many people around the world, 
does just that. To sustain this, you need a few spiritual skills, tools of good works, as St. Benedict calls them. First, you need the right attitude towards experience in meditation. As in everything else, there are good days and bad days. At times, you feel filled with peace and joy of the spirit. You'll feel so harmonious, you could float through the day. At other times, every step of the day feels like the way of the cross. Everything and everyone is against you. But to keep the balance, we need to learn how to recognize the changes that occur in daily life as the fruits of the Spirit. They occur silently. Jesus says that the seed planted in the ground grows how we do not know. Because this is a growth that takes place below the radar of the observational mind, you cannot tell by observation when the kingdom of God will come, he says. You see the changes that meditation works in your life after they have happened, and often through others rather than by self-observation. Other people will say, you know, you're a little easier to live with. The deepest change of all, of course, is that you are becoming less self-centered and less preoccupied with yourself. When you look into yourself, you find the mirror of your soul that reflects God, not your ego. The ultimate goal is a complete conformity of the inner and outer dimensions, the Martha and Mary, the left and right hemispheres, contemplation and action. But until we get there, we have the simple daily practice to be faithful to. It's not such a great sacrifice of time when you consider the benefits. For most of us, coming to meditation later in life with busy, often stressful lives and a lot of psychological baggage, this entails a very steep learning curve. Remember, meditation is a discipline, a disciple's work, and so it's a learning process all the way. But it's very different for children, for the children around the world who are learning to meditate at school at the beginning of their life's journey. Not only are they better able to offload some of the psychological baggage that they would otherwise be layering and accumulating, but they are also developing a discipline of stabilization and clarity that can accompany them through the rough periods ahead of them. They're learning at the outset that meditation is solitary and communal. There are, of course, many other ways of prayer. Meditation doesn't replace them all. I mentioned one form of prayer that has fallen into disuse in modern times, but which was thought very highly of in former times, the mindfulness of death. Mindfulness of death sounds a bit morbid to modern ears, but it conveys an ancient wisdom found in all traditions. It doesn't mean that you're constantly thinking of the color and shape of your coffin, but that you are conscious of the impermanence of things in each moment, and that you are prepared to let go in those circumstances when you find yourself getting attached. 
Mindfulness of death does not come naturally because we instinctively deny it. We need to work at it and pray for it. If we don't develop this mindfulness of death, the danger is that the repression of the fear of death erupts in the social death culture that we see today reflected in our entertainment business or the quest for immortality in medical science or in our treatment of the environment. All of them expressions of a distorted attitude to death. Mindfulness of death in the Christian tradition opens us to the mindfulness of God. And for many secular-minded people today, the experience of death, especially the mortality and final stages of life in themselves or in their loved ones, is their first encounter with the spiritual dimension of life. It also strengthens the character and helps us to persevere in the spiritual path. The desert father said, the one who keeps the image of death before his eyes will always overcome faint-heartedness. Meditation is an experience of dying, of dying to the compulsions and attachments of our mind and emotions. And the more we learn from it, the more we are able to apply it to the way we live in our work and relationships. Every night, in sleep, we taste a little death. The reading of scriptures, the celebration of the Eucharist, and facing the mortality of our life are all connected aspects of a contemplative spirituality today. I'm not saying it's the only formula, or the only way, but it's one that works for many people. It enlightens the small things of life with significance and empowers us to live the life of Christ in ways we might have thought impossible before the contemplative dimension opened up for us. You're listening to Father Lawrence Freeman, who was recently in Brisbane and speaking at Pray 2010, a gathering hosted by the Catholic Archdiocese of Brisbane. On ABC Radio National, this is Encounter. My mother's family came from an island in County Cork called Bear Island, where I spend time from time to time. A few weeks ago, Ashlyn Sullivan was playing in the sitting room of her home on Bear Island in Cork. She was an extraordinary child, five and a half years old, and an epiphany of joy and vitality. She was the youngest of the children, and her parents had felt that she'd come to them to bring an even higher kind of perfection to their beautiful family, the icing on the cake, as they called her. She loved Irish dancing and playing with her brothers, and she loved to meditate. On that tragic, very ordinary afternoon of her accident, while she was playing in the sitting room, she pulled down the edge of a mantelpiece near the fireplace on her head, and she never opened her eyes again. In an unpredictable and unpreventable instant, affliction struck the family. Simone Weil says that affliction is a very particular form of suffering. 
Affliction includes but is more than physical or mental pain. According to Simone Weil, it nails the soul to the center of the universe, as does the cross. And Simone Weil then opens a remarkable insight into this human mystery of suffering in words that could only have been formed by Christian faith. This is what she says. The person who has known pure joy, if only for a moment, is the only person for whom affliction is something devastating. At the same time, he is the only person who has not deserved that punishment. But after all, for him it is no punishment. It is God holding his hand and pressing rather hard. For if he remains constant, what he will discover buried deep under the sound of his own lamentations is the pearl of the silence of God. We don't pray only in times of affliction. We also pray at baptisms and weddings, the funerals of friends and relatives, before football matches, in MRI rooms and on the bus. Why should we bother with prayer unless it works? And if it works, what does it do? Does it mean we get what we want? That we inform God of what he has missed, because he's very busy, and thereby get his attention? Does it mean that we pull God into our lives to intervene on our behalf? Does it mean we're asking God to change his mind? If we think that prayer changes things externally, for good or ill, by some manipulation of supernatural forces, then we are, I think, dabbling in a form of magic. If, however, we see prayer as changing things because, firstly, it changes us, then we're no longer in the realm of magic. We have entered a way of faith. Prayer is a way of faith. The teachings of Jesus on prayer amount to a contemplative program, not magic. He assured us that prayer works. Very definitely. Whoever knocks on the door, the door will be opened. Whoever asks will receive. Whoever seeks will find. But common sense tells us that this doesn't mean literally what it says. Otherwise, we'd all have won the lottery by now, wouldn't we? We have to knock on a real door, and our desire itself has to be in touch with reality. That means our desire itself has to be transformed, because most of our desires are not very real. To realize just how real this understanding of prayer is, let's go back to the tragic death of little Ashlyn Sullivan. When Anne, her mother, arrived after the accident, Jack was carrying the child in his arms into the boat to take her, get her to a hospital. He handed her to Anne, and Anne is a working nurse who trained in intensive care. And she said that as a wife and as a nurse, she knew immediately that there was no hope. And in a few hours, the first uh, brain scan showed that Ashlyn's brain was virtually dead, suffered a complete trauma. 
some little reflexes were still operating in the brain stem, which controls breathing or allows breathing and some, a few other very primitive reflexes. But the rest of the brain had just been destroyed. Now, no words can describe, but perhaps we can begin to imagine what the parents and the rest of the family and the four boys and the friends were feeling at this moment of affliction. The impact of affliction is total. Even the body suffers. It's hard to breathe. And the mind suffers. We cannot believe that it has happened. And for the religious person, it has hit their belief system like a meteorite. The questions that arise are devastating. Why did this happen? Why did God let it happen? They are unanswerable questions in that form. And that's why, as Simone Bay says, these very questions, which are unanswerable, propel us into the silence of God. And that silence of God at first seems very terrible and very uncommunicative. So what does prayer mean at times like this? Petitionary prayer depends upon some level of realistic hope. If someone suffered an accident in which they lost a limb or vital organ, but the limb was lost but not destroyed, and the vital organ was damaged but we didn't quite know how badly, you might pray that medical help could be found quickly and perhaps the limb could be reconnected, the miracle of modern science, or that a transplant could happen. So it would not be unrealistic to hope for that and therefore to pray for that. The question is, though in other circumstances, like this one, does God intervene and does God suspend the laws of nature? Magic tries to remake reality. Faith accepts it. With the amazing expansion of heart that love can make happen, even in affliction, Anne was concerned even in those hours, not to foster false hopes in her husband and children, other children. As she held Ashlyn in her arms in the hours after they had disconnected the life support, an acceptance of reality in faith was happening in the family and those around. And it became an epiphany of grace. That's the paradox of a Christian experience of affliction. That even in the midst of the affliction, we see this epiphany. Accepting what is, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, not denying reality. It can't be said that their acceptance made the affliction less intense, but perhaps we can say it made it bearable. They are going through it. The wake took place in the traditional way in the room where the accident had happened. It was an amazing couple of days. The conflicts between neighbors were reconciled in that room. People sat in silence around the open coffin and they meditated. 
The funeral mass was attended by hundreds of people and everything associated with these events, everything, was charged with such intensity, such empathy, such a sense of acceptance of the mystery that everything was a form of prayer. Prayer changes our life because it unites our experience of life with our experience of God. And in this sense of prayer, you don't need even to be a religious believer to discover prayer. You may not know what you are discovering, but you can discover it. But the religious person, above all, should be one who understands what is happening, what it means. And true prayer, therefore, makes for true religion. And the truth of religion is revealed in a time of crisis. Crisis is a test of faith and of character. No one ever chooses to be in a crisis. You might want your life to change, but you don't want a crisis to do it. Because a crisis involves a total loss of control. It's like driving a car and you suddenly realize you can't control the wheel anymore. As we can see with the death of Ashlyn, a crisis can hit us at any instant. We know not the day nor the hour. Yet most of us perhaps can look back over the years and revisit a time of crisis. We might remember what we suffered then, and then to our surprise, we might see benefits that came to us through this crisis. Gifts of grace that we could never have dared to imagine at the time. We might have felt very confusedly or vaguely that that grace was present at the time, or seen intermittent glimpses of it, but then the pain or the suffering overwhelmed us again. But those little flickers of grace in the time of confusion did not peter out or abandon us, but they grew and bore fruit, fruit that lasts. God was present in the crisis as God is always present. God is presence. And from that earthquake of crisis and the fissures that it makes in our world, new ways of understanding, new gifts of wisdom can arise. Affliction reveals the nature of prayer, as does joy and peace, of course. But affliction perhaps reveals it more fully. We can see the mystery of Christ in his birth, but it's in his death that we see its full wonder. Because in affliction, we are overwhelmed by the law of loss, the mortality of things. This law pervades the universe, from the smallest atomic particle to the most evolved form of human love. All things in their present form are passing away. It is the work of prayer to see and embrace this law Prayer that denies it or seeks to evade it remains bound to the ego, the ego's fear of loss and its desire for the unreal. No one can deny another person any consolation, especially in a time of affliction. But we should teach the distinction between truth and illusion. Simone Weil said that 
daydreaming is the root of all evil. And then she added, it is the sole consolation of the afflicted. The only problem is, is that it's daydreaming, that it's not real. And the consolation offered by the unreal is false. It doesn't last, and it blocks us. It cannot help us to grow through the affliction or the loss. Religion cannot inhumanly deny whatever consolation people may seek, have the right to seek or feel that they need. Nevertheless, it is the duty of religion to teach the truth. Petitionary or intercessory prayer is not necessarily an attempt to deny reality, of course, or to seek false consolation or to change God's mind. It is an expression, even in the overwhelming fact of affliction, of faith. In that faith, we learn to be who we are with what is forming us into being the person God calls us to be. And by faith, we accept reality as it is. And that's what changes us and changes the world around us. With faith, we learn to live in the present moment, detached from our fears and our desires, whether the immediacy of that moment is affliction or great joy. The truth that religion must teach and that the gospel teaches and that we must all learn through prayer is not enshrined in words or in rituals. That truth is found like the treasure buried in the field or the pearl of great price in the experience of prayer that dispels illusion and embraces reality however hard reality may seem. Truth sets us free, just as prayer frees us from the fears and desires of the ego and the magic that the ego has recourse to in order to save itself from death, from the death that leads to life and the loss that leads to finding. On ABC Radio National, you've been listening to Encounter and Father Lawrence Freeman speaking at Pray 2010. You can find out more about Lawrence Freeman and Pray 2010 at our website, abc.net.au slash rn slash encounter, where you'll also find a full transcript of this week's program, as well as streaming audio and podcast links. Studio producer this week was Judy Rapley, and I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company.